Welcome to episode 259 of The Recovery Show. I'd like to share with you this week Mary Pearl T's thoughts on step one. Good morning. My name is Mary Pearl. I'm an Al-Anon who likes to be happy, joyous, and free. <laughs> the reason I always say that is because, uh, as, are there any members of the other fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous in the room? Well, I went to a, uh, a meeting one night, a speaker meeting, and uh, they, they asked me if I would share that night, and I heard a comment from a couple of them, and they said, oh, God, we've got to listen to another suffering Eleanor. <laughs> and I thought, no, you're going to suffer. And so when I got up, I said, uh, for the benefit of those three over there, if y'all would like to leave now, you may, before I start suffering. (laughs) No, I like to know that uh, recovery in my life means that I can be happy, joyous, and free. And you know, oh, I love this. This rocks. (laughs) And uh, it has, over my life, you know, I've had a lot of things happen, just like you have. Because in here we learn we have to live life on life's terms. And sometimes life can be really crappy with its terms, I'm here to tell you. But you know, sooner or later, I have to come back to being happy, joyous, and free or I couldn't get through stuff. You know, and so God has blessed me with the ability sometimes to see something funny or even bizarre in the midst of a bunch of garbage. You know, and so I like to to know that. But I want to tell you first that I am a member of the Rose City Big Book Black Belt Al-Anon Family Group. <laughs> uh, we believe in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which isn't always popular a lot of places, but it's more popular in the South. And um, we do study that in addition to our Al-Anon literature. Uh, we take the program very seriously, but we don't take ourselves very seriously at all. You know, we have learned to lighten up. Uh, everything is not the end of the world and such a big deal. It's not all about me, mostly, but not all. <laughs> you know, and I want to tell you to begin with that I'm not an authority on Al-Anon, the 12 steps, or anything. I'm going to share with you my experience. You know, if I tell you about my ideas and my thoughts and whatever, you can argue with those, but you cannot argue with my experience. You know, but that is the one thing that I have, and it's one of the things that we're told. Our experience is our greatest asset that we have to give to the newcomer, is to tell you what my life used to be like, what happened, and what my life is today as a result of bringing the program home and working it inside my home, my life, my my body, my thoughts, and what have you, to become oriented into the program principles of the 12 Steps. Uh, I'm not sharing theories here today, you know, and, and you, like I say, you may not have had all the experiences, I hope you haven't, that I have had. And, uh, you know, when I got here, I felt like that everybody in the world would have done exactly what I did, given the same set of circumstances. And I found out there were other ways to, re- to respond to things instead of always being the reactor, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I am qualified for Al-Anon. I was qualified the day I arrived on earth. 
My mother's family, her mother, her father, two brothers, and sister were alcoholics. My mother was the only non-drinking member of her family. I think she needed one. (laughs) She was by far the sicker of all of them, you know. The untreated Al-Anon is a sick puppy, I'll tell you. You know, and she had experienced things that are beyond anything I can imagine, having been brought up in all of that alcoholism and the abuse that went with it. And so when, uh, like I say, there was never any alcohol in our home except at Christmas time, mother would make one little thing of eggnog punch. And uh, as a child, you weren't allowed to drink it, so it didn't make any difference to me. My first memory of my grandfather was he was all bandaged up where he had gotten uh, rolled after he had gotten drunk and he had gotten a big fight and he was all battered and they had to take him to the hospital and they brought him back. And my first memory of him is sitting at our kitchen table looking like what I thought the mummy looked like. And I was terrified of him. And my mother had said, stay away from Papa when he's drinking because he's really mean. So I was terrified of my grandfather for good reason. Uh, my mother's father, he died in, of wet brain from alcoholism when I was in high school. My grandmother died of cirrhosis of the liver from her alcoholism. My mother's oldest brother was shot in bed with another man's wife. He was drunk at the time, but he was my favorite. <laughs> He was sort of like me. He was addicted to excitement. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, that's the way it was. There was only one uncle on my father's side that had a a drinking problem, and it was an uncle by marriage, my aunt's uh, husband. And I never knew he had a drinking problem. I just knew that every morning, uh, he never said much, really. Uh, Every morning, the bootlegger would come and leave a quart fruit jar of what looked like water, it was clear, on the, the porch and take the money out from under the little dish and go his merry way. And my uncle just sipped out of this quart fruit jar, which we today we know was white lightning. And uh, he was just sort of mellow all day long. (laughs) He never caused any problems. He just maintained. And after my aunt died, he maintained until he had to go to the nursing home. He was dead in a week from DTs from alcoholism. He didn't get that white lightning at the nursing home. Tragedy. Uh, my spouse, by the grace of God, is a member in good standing of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and in January we'll have 30 years of continuous sobriety. You know. And that applause is for him, his higher power, and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if it weren't for the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, we wouldn't be here, people. We wouldn't be here. You know, remember, we borrowed their program, you know, we borrowed their program. So as you can see, I am well qualified to be up here because I've always had alcoholics in my life. And I've always felt like I was a carrier because wherever I go, I can find them. (laughs) You know, wherever I go, there they are. (laughs) Well, I've learned in here that wherever I go, there I am, you know. Yes. Uh, Gray Chrysler Caravan, license number ACMS 213. You're blocking the entrance to the chip wagon. You will be destroyed. (laughs) 
and while I'm at it, I have another announcement. Would you please turn off your cell phones, beepers, pagers, or anything like that unless you are an organ donor or recipient? <laughs> so if I hear one, we're going to clear the way for you to leave. Okay. Now, as I told you, that was my qualification for Al-Anon. That's not what makes me an Al-Anon. What makes me an Al-Anon is not the mere fact I qualify. What makes me an Al-Anon is I am someone who attends Al-Anon meetings on a regular basis. I work the 12 steps and 12 traditions in my life. I um, am actively uh, helping others to recover through the program of Al-Anon. That's what makes me an Al-Anon. You know, when I came in, I would hear sometimes members of AA talk about their spouse and say, my little Al-Anon. They never even went to meetings. I said, and I told the guy one night, I said, that's like me going up to a practicing drunk and saying, here's a member of AA. I said, when we're out there practicing our sickness instead of in our meetings trying to change our way of living, we are no more an Al-Anon than you are a member of AA. And he said, I stand corrected. I said, you're lucky you still stand. As I said, I'm a black belt mean Al-Anon. <laughs> I'm a low bottom Al-Anon, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, in general, in order to, to work the 12 steps, I think there's some things that you have to have. And the first thing I think you need is a sponsor. I found that was what I needed. I needed someone that had been there, done that, knew the way. You know, I love to travel. It's a good thing. And when I travel and if I go on a tour, I put my money up and I want to get the most for my dollar wherever I'm going. So I have, and I listen to what the tour director says. And they'll tell you what to do and what not to do. And if you want to have a good experience for your money, then you'll do what they say do because they've been there, done that, they know. Or you can go off on your own and get out there in the weeds and wonder how that happened. And I find that in Al-Anon, you know, people say, well, uh, how soon should I get a sponsor? And I go, I don't know. How soon do you want to get better? You know, you can put it off as long as you want to, but you're not going to get any better until you do something different. And then the most important thing about sponsorship to me is accountability. I have someone that I am accountable to for my behavior and what I'm doing. It's someone, you know, when you're doing all your own thinking in your head, you will co-sign anything you think of. It's always a good idea because you had it. You know, it's like a baby. You know, you had your baby. This is your baby. You nurture it, you know. Well, my best thinking got me in a lot of trouble. And I told my sponsor when I got here, I said, I am a self-made woman. She said, yes, and look what's self-made. <laughs> you know, that sort of hurt my feelings. And your sponsor, if she's doing a good job, or he will hurt your feelings. Because they're not going to co-sign all your cockamamie, you know. And if you're doing so well, why are you here? You know, that's always my thing. When people come in the, the doors of Al-Anon, they don't come in going, God, it was such a gorgeous day out, I thought I'd join Al-Anon. <laughs> we usually come here because we're miserable, we're hurt, we're scared. Our life isn't working for us, and we have come for some help. And the help is here, but you have to be willing to take some directions other than your own thinking. That's the reason the sponsor. Uh, attendance, regular attendance 
at your meetings, and especially any step meetings. You know, uh, when I first came into L9, we did not have any step meetings. We had just discussion meetings, and that's where everybody got in and talked about the problem. Well, I'm here to tell you that you can talk about the problem all day long, but nothing changes till you get in the solution, and the solution is the 12 steps. That's where you begin to make the changes in your life. So, because I can go to a meeting on resentments, and before two or three minutes, I have one. (laughs) Because when we start thinking about it, we can think about every resentment we've ever had. Now we're in a negative frame of mood, you know. So that's the reason, like I say, I love the step meetings. You're going to have to come with an open mind, you know, and it'll be easy to tell if you have an open mind. If you say, yes, but, what if, and I know, you do not have an open mind. And those were words that I had to remove from my vocabulary because I had a lot of yes, but, what if, and I know. Next thing you're going to have to do is learn to be honest with yourself. If you're never honest with anybody else, you must be honest with yourself. You have to have that rigorous self-honesty to be look, to be able to look at what you're doing and what you have done and how you're thinking and to be able to say, that's crazy. That doesn't work. Because how many times do, do we do the same thing over and over and over again with the idea that this time it's going to be different? And that's lying to yourself. Lying to yourself. And then you're going to have some willingness. You're going to have to have willingness to change. Willingness to do something different. And change, even good change, is scary. But what should scare you more is the thought that you're going to keep doing it the way you've been doing it forever and ever and ever. You know, when the fear of the known is greater than the fear of the unknown, you'll do something different. To know that it's never going to get any better until you do something different. So... And that's my thing. Is there anything we can put under this to keep it from rocking? We've, we've got quite a bit of rock going on off that front corner there, and that is really distracting. It's on the front corner. Yeah. It's much better. Thank you. Well, it was until you put all your weight on it. To... Let me just stay right here all day. <laughs> That's good for you. Thank you. Here, I'll hold you. (laughs) Thank you, Bonnie. How I got my sponsor is important, I think. Um, I still have the same sponsor I started with. And as of January the 15th, I too will have 30 years. 30 years in Al-Anon. I can remember at my first meeting, there was a lady who got up and said she had five years, and my first thought was, stupid bitch. <laughs> She's been in five years, and she hadn't got it yet. My God, it's only 12 steps. Why could it? <laughs> I use my sponsor. I talk to my sponsor. I talk to my sponsor on a regular basis because she's the one person who knows me better than anybody else. And if she can catch me doing things when I'm just thinking about doing them. Because she, she can say sometimes, you got that look. You know, you got that look. 
Uh, like I say, what I'm sharing today is not conference approved. You're going to hear me make mention of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous because I worked the program through the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the AA 12 and 12. These are, you know, when I came in 30 years ago, we didn't have the all the literature we have today. I don't know if we need all the literature we have today, but we have it anyway. But what I'm saying is this was how I did it. And so this was how I did it, and this is how people I sponsor will do it, because that's the only thing I can share with you is my experience. I don't know how to do it otherwise than that. When I came into Al-Anon, I was a victim. I was blaming. You know, I was a victim in life. Everything was not my fault. Uh, You know, I just, I had a lot of bad luck, and people were out to get me. And I want you to know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you either. I was arrogant, I was self-righteous, and I was dominating. I was all of those things that we talk about in the pamphlet, Understanding Ourselves. Understanding Ourselves, I was all those things. And the fear, like I say, the fear of the known became greater than the fear of the unknown, and so I was able to make a change. Now, the, the book says, here are the steps we took as a program of recovery. So the steps are the program of recovery. And if you're wondering if you're working the program, what step are you on right now? What step are you working right now? Because at all times, we need to be working on one of the steps. And I find that over the years, you keep going back through them again and again and again. And each time you go in, it's at a deeper level. And you see uh, how much different it is today for you than it was in the beginning when you were working that step. It means so much more as the years go by. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Now, I'm big on words, you know. I love words, and I like to know the meaning of words, so I look things up in the dictionary all the time just to make sure. And understanding, you know, I'm going to talk about words today. Understanding leads to knowledge. Knowledge doesn't necessarily lead to wisdom. You see, I had knowledge. I was not stupid. I just acted that way. (laughs) I had all, see, that was the thing that always confused me because I always felt that all the solutions to life were within the pages of books. And if you read enough, if you're well-read enough, if you study hard enough, then you ought to be able to figure the deal out, you know. And I had all this knowledge, but self-knowledge avails you nothing. All that self-knowledge avails you nothing because you're fighting a disease, a disease. And you see, I thought I was fighting a person. I thought I was fighting alcohol. I didn't realize I was fighting a disease. And I had been fighting that disease all my life and had no clue. When you get here, you have your idea what you think an alcoholic is. Well, to me, an alcoholic was like my mother's father. An alcoholic was like my mother's family. My husband was not like those. So it was real easy to deny that he had that problem because he wasn't like them. And I didn't realize how them included me. My mother said to me one time, she says, why do you go to meetings with those kind of people? Because she looked down on alcoholics or anybody around them, and she had left and gotten away from her family years and years before. And I said, well, Mama, I guess I'm one of those kind of people. Because I always felt comfortable around the alcoholics. I always seemed drawn to them. You know why? 
Because I love, my drug of choice is adrenaline. I love excitement. Doctor tells me too much is not a good thing. You know, too much of any positive becomes a negative. Do you ever know that? If you can do anything, you know, and my thing is if it feels worth doing, do it till you die on the spot. <laughs> and I love excitement. And when you're around an alcoholic, you never know what's happening. So therefore, it's exciting, you know, in a way. And it's fun until it's in your home. Because I can remember when we were dating and he would be drunk or something, you know, this will pass. And when we get married, all this will change. And guess what? It did change. It got worse. (laughs) It got worse. But, you know, at the time, that's what I'm thinking, you know. That's how it's going to be. All right, I'm powerless. What does powerless mean? Having no power over something. And what I found in one of the dictionaries was this definition. It says, unable to produce any kind of positive effect. And that was the truth. No matter what I tried when dealing with alcoholism, whatever I was doing, I could not produce a positive effect in what was happening. I couldn't get the end result, no matter what. And that was for him not to drink. For him not to drink. And I would go insane, literally trying to get him not to drink. I could see what the disease was doing to him. I could not see what the disease was doing to me. I was powerless over that. I don't like the word powerless. I don't like it because it blew my whole theory of life as I knew it. You see, I I was the kind of person, if I got one shred of success out of what I was trying to do, it works. Now, 99 didn't work, but the one did, so I'll go back to that one that did, thinking the whole deal was working, when in fact, it wasn't working, you know. And I considered myself a success on the ability to change or manipulate other people to do what I wanted them to do. And I learned manipulation very, very young in my life. I was a change-of-life baby. My daddy was 54 years old when I was born. My mother was 41. Neither one of them really wanted kids, I don't think, at that point. But I was a surprise. My mother had had to take treatments to get pregnant before with the other three. And so there's 16 years difference between me and my first sibling, 25 between me and the oldest. So I was an only child living in our home. And uh, I learned to manipulate early because my daddy would do anything rather than hear me whine or complain. And so mama would tell me no, and I'd go into a screaming coma, and daddy would say, okay, okay, you can do it, you can do it. And I love my daddy. (laughs) My daddy let me have my way, and I would have loved anybody who let me have my way. Okay, honesty. My reality was honesty. This doesn't mean it was necessarily the truth. You know, I would be honest in telling you what I thought things were happening and this is how it is, but it wasn't necessarily the truth of what was going on. There's a difference between honesty and truth, you know. That's just like uh, there's a difference between fantasy and denial. That's just like the other day uh, I was reminded of this old story about... um, there was a, a nun. No, there was a priest. It was a priest and a rabbi and an Al-Anon. And they all died and went to hell. And they're sitting there in hell discussing the situation. And so the 
priest looks over at the rabbi. He said, why are you in hell? He said, pork. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, when I was a kid, next door neighbors invited me over for supper one night. They had pork chops. I got the taste for pork. You know, we're not supposed to eat pork. It's unclean. That's why I'm here. Why are you here? And the priest said, well, it's sort of the same thing. It was the next door neighbor's daughter. (laughs) I never could quite grasp that celibacy thing real well. And so they turned to the Elena and they said, "Uh, well, why are you here? She said, what do you mean? And they said, well, what did you do to get sent to hell? She says, not hot and I'm not here. <laughs> it's like I, I told uh, a dear friend the other day, uh, we were doing what started out to be a, a really nice thing and turned into a nightmare as things sometimes do. Uh, one of the gentlemen, in fact, it was real funny because he's from Toronto that I sponsor and, and he's, uh, was down in Arkansas and I was up here to be up here with y'all and he'd come to my house and for my birthday he was painting my living room and kitchen and what have you. That's a really nice thing because that's a lot of work. But that's also a lot of chaos, confusion, and clutter. And I don't work real well in that kind of thing. I, I Order really makes me more comfortable. And I told him, I said, and in Arkansas it was 117 degrees, and I said, it's hot, it's hell, and I'm here. I'm not. <laughs> we got a charge out of that. Uh, but anyway, the, you have to have acceptance and surrender. You have to surrender to the fact that you can't change something, that you're powerless over something. And you know, the thing of it is, somehow I got the idea that all my ideas were good and that people should do what I said. People should mind me. You know, we always get along well if you mind me. But if you don't mind me, we're not going to do well here, you know. I had the, and another thing, I always thought that you had to agree with something or approve it in order to accept it. That's not true either. You don't have to like things to accept them. I don't like the fact there's a war going on in lots of places in this world. But the fact is, it is. And you have to accept the reality that, yes, that is. And people get killed in war. That is reality. That is reality. And we don't have to like it, but you must have to accept it. And I don't know where I got the idea that God had given me the ability to know what was best for everybody else to do. I don't know where that came from. You know, I seem to have it. But it was always amazing because people would come to me and ask me, what should we do? Even as a kid in school, other kids would come up, what do you think we ought to do? And and, uh, and, I, and I don't know why, because if you'd look at my life, you why would anybody ask me what to do? If you're watching what I do, why would you ask me? And it's because I always had this air of superiority that went around saying, I'm smarter than everybody else, I know what to do. And you know why you had that? When you have an inferiority complex a mile wide, you act differently so that people can't hurt you. So that was the front that I would put up so that you couldn't get to me. And I was always terrified behind that, that something was going to happen that wasn't going to be well after what I told you to do. But it would always be because you didn't follow the directions properly. It was never my fault. 
you know. So over and over all my life, I tried to manage and control people. And did you know that control freaks, control freaks, I'll get out here in a minute, are the most terrified people in the world? Because if you weren't terrified, you wouldn't find it necessary to have to get into that, you know, that little minutia control. You know, we do micromanagement, you know. We can say to somebody, you know, this is what you need to do, and now here's how you need to do it. Down to the very nth degree, you know, because we've got to micromanage that to make sure that it goes the way we want it to go. And control is often disguised in logic. I would say I'm a very logical person. Think things through. I'm a big thinker. And then my sponsor always says, when I tell her I've been thinking, she goes, oh, God, not again. <laughs> because my thinking is sort of skewed sometimes, you know. More often than not, come to think about it, you know. And logic is the ability to reason clearly. And that is without preconceived ideas and agendas and all like that. And uh, I just considered myself a logical person, and I set about trying to get everything to go the way I wanted it to go. I had all these logical reasons why you should agree and co-sign whatever idea I came up with. And my husband said he used to hate to have a discussion with me about something because he said he knew he was never going to win. Because no matter what he said, I would have another comeback to it to explain to him why what he said wasn't applying here, it wasn't correct, or you just don't understand, you know. That was the way I would go about him. Now, my way is always the correct way. (laughs) It's my way, what else? (laughs) Well... You know, even years later, you know, I have learned in the program that acceptance and surrender are some of the hardest things to learn, some of the hardest, and I'll miss it. Now, my husband is big in the yard work. He loves his yard. He's out there all the time. And I decided, well, I could have a yard work project as well. Now, I'm not a big outdoors person. You're not going to find, I do, I do not do rustic. Rustic is even a motel with a black and white TV. I don't do rustic, you know. But I decided I wanted this magnificent flower bed in front of my home. And so I got out there and um, I designed my flower bed. And I said, well, it's not too bad. We'll make it, you know, like about maybe, you know, 50 foot long and about 15 foot deep. That, that ought to do it. That'll do it all right. And then I went to the quarry, and I got all these rocks, and they all had to be the same size because I'm going to make a border for this flower bed, and it's a free-form border that I have designed. I have this little template, and so I take my template with me to the quarry, and I'm laying out the rocks one at a time around my template, and the guy at the quarry says, I've never seen it done that way. Well, these rocks are, they're New Mexico uh, river washed rocks, and they're very expensive, and I didn't want one too many or one too few. you got to have just the right number. So the way to do that is you lay them out exactly the way they're going to be when you get them there. Took a whole day, got my rocks, took them home, laid them out. 
and I planted a bunch of elephant ears next to the brick of our home, and I planted the hostas I was going to do across the front in this scalloped area, and I had a solid, a variegated, a solid, a variegated. It looked very, very wonderful to me. And between those was this big expanse, you know, because we got this wide deal. I had um, 17 flats of impatience. <laughs> now, flats are lots of impatience, you know. Now, impatience was a good flower for me. <laughs> sort of explains. And they were all different colors, so it's going to be this, you know, wonderful thing. And uh, after days of little holes and poking, uh, we got all of the flowers in, and I stood back and I said, now it's time to fertilize. Well, now at home we have a product called Miracle Grow. I guess y'all have it up here too. But at home there's a commercial, and this guy's standing there, and he says, I grew a 50 pound tomato with my Miracle Grow. And I said, Yes, that's what I need, Miracle Grow. And the instructions said once a month to put a, a solution of Miracle Grow on your plants. Well, if once a month is good, <laughs> I'm thinking, uh huh, once a week is better, isn't it? Never too much of a good thing. And pretty soon I have got a yard that when people drive by, they stop. They've never seen four foot tall impatience. <laughs> I have elephant ears that go to the roof, you know. I mean, it's amazing, you know. And I was standing there waiting to do my miracle grow endorsements, you know. I, I know they're going to come and ask me to do the TV thing because it's so nice out there. Well, uh, the only problem was one night I came home and there was a hole in the middle of my impatience. Now, impatience are very tender little plants and they break easily. And here it was that there was a, there was a big hole that just smashed flat and broken off even with the ground in my impatience. Oh, I mean, it's almost coronary time because you see, perfection is ruined. Because even if I plant more impatience, they're not going to be the same height as the other impatience. You know, it's just screwed up. Now I'm mad. And I want to know what happened here. Now, I don't know what that's going to change. But you see, we are gatherers of information that we can't do jack with once we got. And finally, my husband said, I think I found the problem. And I said, what? He said, look out there. There is this cat that is lurking in my little jungle of impatience so he can eat the birds at my bird feeder and he's breaking down my impatience. I hate cats. <laughs> I've hated cats my whole life. When I was a little kid, my sister had a Siamese cat, jumped on me. I had to have 16 stitches. I don't like cats, I don't trust cats, don't want to be around the cats, and now I've got a cat. It's a feral cat out there in the flower bed. Got to get rid of the cat. So now here, if you ever need a solution for anything, go to your Al-Anon meeting early. And while sitting there before the meeting, ask somebody, how do you get rid of a cat? For as many people there, you will have a solution. And the first one said, you know, if you, mothballs, they hate mothballs, put mothballs out there in your flower bed. Well, I went and got me several boxes of mothballs. You could smell my house from three blocks away. <laughs> Didn't bother my cat. 
Another one said hot pepper because she said they crack cayenne pepper because they walk on it and they lick their paws. They won't like that. I must have a Mexican cat. (laughs) Didn't bother my cat. And there was all these other methods I'm trying. And, and as they do that, of course, the season's going on. And so then I decided toward the end of the season, somebody suggested, you know, a, a gun. And I thought, that's good. <laughs> so I had a pellet gun, a rifle. And so I pumped it up to about three and I walked out the door. And I'd look for the cat, and the cat would look for me. You know, we got to be real adversaries. And I would see the cat over there, and I'd aim, and I'd shoot the cat in the butt, and he'd go, meow. And the next day, he'd be back again. (laughs) So I would pump it up some more, a little stronger, this go round, and I would shoot him, and he'd go, meow. And then he would be back again. And so finally, I pumped it up to 10, as hard as I could pump that gun. And so I shot him. I missed. I knocked a hole in the next-door neighbor's house. (laughs) The end of the season, the next year, I plant more impatience, and I water my impatience, and here comes the cat again. You know, we're each doing the same thing, expecting something different. I can see him doing it. I'm not seeing me do it. My sponsor's laughing hysterically. She thinks it's the funniest thing in the world. Well, I went through several more things that didn't work, and then finally uh, I decided, you know, I have a gun. I'm just going to shoot him. I'm going to kill the cat, and then I will be done with the cat. Done with the cat. And... Uh, <laughs> I have a friend who raises golden retrievers, and they're show dogs. And he told me, he said, you know, I live out in the country, and this little stray dog came up. And he said, uh, I I thought he lived at the house down the road, and I called him. They said, no, it wasn't there. Just go ahead and kill it. And he said, so I shot it. He said, but the tragedy was I didn't kill him on the first go-round. And he said, I'll never forget that scream if I live to be a 1,000. Well, thanks for sharing, Skip. (laughs) Now I have to think about, what if I don't kill the cat on the first shot? You know, what if I don't kill him? You know, I mean, you get hit with a thirty-eight; it's going to do some damage on you. But nonetheless, what if I don't kill him on the first shot? Okay, I better not try that. And it's like, well, what do you do? What do you do? And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden it's like, don't you see what you're trying to do here? No, what am I trying to do? You're trying to change the nature of a cat. A cat is a predator. Cats go out and kill birds and and things to eat and and what have you. This is a feral cat. He's killing for his food. You're not going to change. And you've provided a perfect habitat for the birds and the squirrel to stalk him amongst the big tall plants. So it's your fault he's eating your birds and squirrels because you provided the jungle for him to hide in. And now you're expecting him not to do what is his nature to do. Oh, God. So now my sponsor has this thing about you accept it to the point that you would not change it if you could. Now that's a big order. What an order. I can't go through with that. Anyway, so you act as if until it becomes. So I go outside and I go, welcome to my yard, FC. 
that's the cat's name, you know. I said, do whatever you want to do. It's your yard. You can be the yard cat. And I come back in the house. My husband's looking at me like I've lost my mind. He said, I would never believe I'd seen that. And I said, well, don't believe it either. I said, I'm acting as if until it becomes. I'm going to act as if it's okay for the cat to be there. And so the next morning I get up, I'm doing my reading and my meditation, and I happen to look out my front window, and one of my happy squirrels is chewing a limb off of my bonsai tree. (laughs) Well, you know, a bonsai tree don't have very many limbs to start with, you know. And here's this this squirrel just gnawing the limb off my tree, and I went tearing out my front door. Where the hell is my cat? Eat this squirrel. I don't see my cat anywhere. And I notice this guy driving by is looking real strange. And I'm thinking, what is the matter with you? And I happen to look down, I'm out in my front yard in my underwear. To say I'm obsessed with my yard, you know. <laughs> Zip back in the house. I'm thinking, my Lord, have mercy. And you know the funny thing about it is I never saw FC again. <laughs> and that just tells me, though, my sponsor says once you accept it, the problem goes away. And literally, FC went away. And for many years, you know, I would look for FC, you know, but I quit planning impatience too, you know. But nonetheless, I didn't see FC. And then one day I was up in Seashell, BC, there at a conference. And as I went into this little motel there, right on the ocean, there's this giant calico cat, which was what FC was. And I said, well, I'll be damned. FC, you went to BC. I can't believe this. And this summer, I have seen offspring of FC. I've seen another calico cat in the neighborhood. Not in my yard, but nonetheless, I've seen it. You know, when you're a manager controller, sometimes you disguise it by being a fixer, or we're going to help you. Just need some help. We help people who have never asked for help and then wonder why they're not appreciative. Did you ever think about that? You know, normal. What is normal? You know, people say, you know, well, it's normal. I'm going, normal is a setting on a washing machine. (laughs) Other than that, I don't know normal, you know, because normal means well-adjusted to the outside, you know, well-adjusted, something that's usual. That doesn't describe anything in my life because my life has always been bizarre. We use rationalization and justification a lot. This is where you give explanations and excuses instead of accepting responsibility for behavior. That's all that amounts to. I had a friend in AA many years ago, and she said, uh, rationalization and justification are just like masturbation. You're just screwing yourself. <laughs> I find that's pretty much true. Did you know as long as you're blaming other people, there's no hope for you? As long as it's their fault, there's no hope for you because you're powerless over them. But if what you're doing contributes to your misery, you can stop that. 
and there is the hope. It's not in the other people. And my life was unmanageable because I had lost control of my emotions and my actions. And if you don't control your emotions, they will control you. Make no mistake of that. Fear and anger controlled my life when I got here. I was terrified of stuff, but I wouldn't look at it as fear because the anger would come, and anger made you feel powerful. So I didn't even know I was afraid. But I knew I was mad about everything. Everything made me mad. Everything made me mad. It was the only emotion I had left. I had to accept that alcoholism is a disease. I didn't know it was a disease. I had seen it in my mother's family. I had seen it in my own home. I didn't know it was a disease. I had come in the program. Y'all told me it was a disease. I couldn't see it as a disease. I'd say, I know they're not lying to me, but I don't see it. I just don't see it. And then one day God let me see it. I was sitting in my office having a crisis of some major. I never had a minor crisis in my life. <laughs> crisis can't be minor. If the word crisis means big, for God's sake. And I don't know how to handle an incident. Blow it into a crisis. I can deal with crisis. <laughs> you know? Anyway, I was sitting there, and my sponsor was at work. I couldn't get a hold of her, and there was this other girl in the group that I listened to a lot. And so I called her, and she was at home. And she said, why don't you take off? And on your break or whatever, and drive over to the house, and we'll talk about it. I said, okay. So I went over to her house, and I drove up, and when, we got, when I got to the front door and opened the door, her husband was laying in the floor at the threshold. She said, just step over, Bobby, and come on. Well, Bobby didn't look very good. Bobby didn't smell very good. Bobby had been drinking till he would pass out, coming to, and drinking till he would pass out for several days and he had relieved himself in every way possible on himself for several days and we got to her kitchen and she said uh, well what's the problem I don't know <laughs> I mean I've just seen something that I you know how could you invite somebody to your home when, when, when there's that situation at the front? And she said, well, honey, Bobby's sick. So she, she said, could you imagine anybody in their right mind wanting to live like that? No. She says, he's sick. She says, he's been there for several days. And she says, I can't do anything about it, but my life goes on. And maybe I can help you but I can't help Bobby. I came to believe it was a disease. Who would want to live like that? Who would have a choice over something to live like that? You see, the disease had removed the choice from Bobby. And she had accepted that she couldn't fix that. And so she was living her life to the best of her ability. That spoke volumes to me. You see, the thing in the program, we can talk to one another all day long, but it's when you're living it and you see people living it that it makes a difference, you know. In AA, they tell them they have three choices. They either do abstinence, insanity, or death. In Al-Anon, we also have three choices. Acceptance, insanity, or death. Because if you do not accept it's a disease, it will drive you crazy. 
and it will kill you one way or another. Sometimes it kills your spirit before your body ever goes. That's sad. You know, that's sad. There's common tools of the manager and controller of the world, and those common tools are questions. Who, what, when, where, how, and why? Beware the adverbs. These are things that we ask trying to figure it out. Well, even if you know why, what difference does it make? Does it change anything? And why did I always want to know why did you do that? Why did you not do that? Because if I can get inside your head and figure you out, I can head you off at the pass. I can outthink you. I can maneuver you. I can manipulate you if I can figure out how you think. And it doesn't work. It does not work. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.